This week on The Right Notes, our guest is Lauren Brentnell, an instructor in the English department at the University of Northern Colorado. We've got a great episode in store, and it just so happens that this is episode 12. Is Springsteen classic rock? You're listening to The Right Notes with Guy McKendry and John Carter. Welcome to The Right Notes. My name is Guy McKendry with Jonathan Carter. Tonight, our guest is Lauren Brettnell, who's an instructor in the department, English department at the University of Northern Colorado. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, we're happy to have you, and uh, I'm actually really excited to talk a little bit about your research on trauma, because I find it... I, I'm, I'm like excited looking over your CV and just in the pre-show talking about it. And we'll uh, get, get to that in a bit. But can you just tell kind of our, our listeners a little bit about your educational background, um, how you came to kind of do the work that you're doing right now? Yeah, definitely. Um, so this is my first year at the University of Northern Colorado. Uh, before that, I was finishing my dissertation at Michigan State University, and I came to study trauma uh, partly because of personal reasons. I've experienced trauma, and I talk about that in my work, so I'm pretty comfortable talking about that in general. You can feel comfortable asking me questions about that. Um, and so one of the things that I like to do is think about how it is to be a body and a person who is experiencing these things and going through these things um, in these university settings, in these institutional settings, and what that means for our interactions with um, instructors, with policies, um, and how we can make those things better. And that is essentially my work is what are these policies? How do we make those things better? How can we better respond to those things? I love how important it is to center like the body and the experience of the individual in conversations that are so often about abstract institutional goals or kind of like legal policy and protection. And it doesn't take like too far to get outside of the, the person and especially the student in mm. those conversations. Right, right. Um, and I think we lose that a lot when we, we're so focused on, like you said, on different policies and different things, but we often forget that it's the people in front of us who are experiencing those. Um, we can think about all sorts of statistics, but in particular, our students are at that time where many of them are experiencing those traumas. Um, and that's the unfortunate reality is that we're sort of in that prime moment where many of them are experiencing those things. And so learning how to deal with that and respond to that in ethical and responsible ways is important. Can you uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, the kind of uh, teaching and pedagogy you do? Yeah, so I write a little bit about what I call uh, both a trauma-informed and care-based approach 
um, to teaching and administration. So I talk a little bit about this in terms of writing center and writing program administration too. Um, and so this comes from both trauma-informed policies, but also thinking about things that are empathetic and care-based. So it works with students who aren't necessarily experiencing trauma specifically, but are just in need of care and things like that too. Um, so these approaches are things like just making sure that you're checking in with students. Like this is just sort of a basic thing, <laughs> um, but also being open and not assuming what students know. Um, for example, one of the things that I always make sure to do is the very first day of class when we're going over like syllabus and policies, our students oftentimes don't know what these things are. And so going over um, what their rights and responsibilities are, um, what agency they have in navigating the university and walking through those sorts of things can be really important and educating them on those as much as we're educating them on sort of the content of our classes can be just as important. So talking through those things too. And are there, so I know, um, I don't know exactly uh, where uh, UNC is right now in terms of terms and your teaching, uh, but what are some examples of classes that you teach? Um, right now I'm teaching a lot of like first year writing, technical writing. I'm teaching this summer like a scientific writing course. So I teach a lot of sort of those um, general writing classes, I guess I would call them. Um, some of the ones that you would expect, like research-based um, and tech writing courses at the moment. Great. Uh, in just a bit, John is uh, going to come in and talk to you about the music you listen to while you work. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that conversation, can you just talk to us, tell us a little bit about um, the music when you're not working, when you're not trying to be that productive scholar, teacher, whatever. Uh, what are you listening to? What's your musical taste like? Yeah, so I I just turned 30, like a couple days ago. Woo. And <laughs> um I so I grew up in this like early 2000s very emo scene kind of yes. thing. Yes. So I was I'm very, very into like my chemical romance, the used census fail, that sort of thing. I still listen to like my chemical romance on repeat all the time. My uh, my song of the week last week was uh, Taste of Ink by The Used. So you yes. are not alone here. Yes, um, that is, I consistently, that's my Spotify playlist. Y'all make me feel so old. <laughs> I mean, that's basically my entire, that listening playlist is just all of the emo stuff from the early 2000s, basically. So yeah, that is... That's my music taste. I sometimes I will reach back a little bit. I do like some of this more like classic rock stuff that my parents listen to because I they sort of brought me into that. Um, but I think the stuff that I first listened to on my own was that sort of emo scene music. Is there like can you give us a couple of examples of the classic rock artists that you find? Um, that are those like touchstones that connect you back to those memories? Yeah. You know, I was listening to a lot of Bruce Springsteen um, the other day for some reason. I, I can't remember what it was, but something just reminded me of that. And so I think 
like he's definitely one that I come back to. And my parents were very into him, like very, very into him. My dad never reads, which is funny given what I do. Um, But he never reads anything ever, except he will read anything if it has something to do with Bruce Springsteen. Um, Like he's read his autobiography. He's read any books that have to do with him. And so that's definitely one that just like consistently connects me back to, I think my dad and, and I mean, I like his music too. Yeah, I have a I have a young kid at home and I am rediscovering the like joys of Peter Paul and Mary that were so formative early on of like my musical relationship with my mom and then now I'm passing that on with my child and uh it's interesting how those familial bonds kind of resurface when you're listening to music. Mhm. Well, um, I, I don't want to depart emo too quickly, but <laughs> let's uh, take a quick break. And when we come back, um, John is going to kind of lead us through this conversation of, of the soundscape that you use while you work. You're listening to The Right Notes. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Right Notes. I'm John Carter here with Guy McHenry and Lauren Brettnell. And we are talking about music writing and really diving into uh, Lauren's uh, music as she writes. I do have to say, um, before we dive in, it's a, a, I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing that this is an audio medium, because I had one of those true moments of recoiling when you called Bruce Springsteen classic rock. <laughs> um, I'm not that much older than y'all. Um, but it's just like that little bit of like music. I actually remember like live now being on classic rock. It doesn't hit me as hard as when I heard like, um, like late nineties music on classic rock stations, but. I heard like Avril Lavigne the other day on an oldies station and had a moment of visceral horror at my life. Um, Yeah. So welcome to being a grown up. (laughs) Um, so this is growing up, which you probably could hear on a classic rock station these days. Um, so let's uh, get over me and Guy feeling old. And so Lauren, as you approach your work, what are some of your favorite uh, artists or music types to listen to as you dive into your work? I, I find it really hard to listen to songs with words. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I, I think more and more I have been able to listen to words with lyrics if they're in languages I don't understand. Uh-huh. Um, but it used to just be that I could only listen to instrumental songs. My so, favorite... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, so what, do you, what is the aversion to words, I'll ask, before we dive into your favorites? I think often it's because usually my work is writing. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes the lyrics distract me from the words that I'm trying to find because mm-hmm. I'm concentrating on the words that other people are saying. Okay. And so it, it's just like a conflict in the words that I'm hearing versus the words that I'm trying to find. That's the best thing that I've come up with for why I can't do it. I'm not sure if that's actually right, but uh, that's my explanation for it. 
we've had people who love words, hate words, etc. I don't think there's a right answer. So, mm-hmm. I think the one, the artist that I continuously come back to is Ramin Djawadi. Uh, I have a Game of Thrones soundtrack that's just all of the soundtracks from every season. Okay. And I listen to that on repeat. It always ends up being my most played on Spotify every year. I can't even, every year at the end of the year, Spotify does that. Here's your mm-hmm. most played songs. And I can't even listen to that because it's just the Game of Thrones soundtracks. So, because I just listen to it when I work. Um, and so that one's one that I definitely come back to a lot. Even though I like instrumental generally, that tends to be my go-to. So give us a sense of, what is the character of that music in particular, like of all the soundtracks, of all the instrumentals? What is it that draws you to that? I, you know, the the soundtracks that I tend to go to, even outside of that, they do tend to be more action oriented. And I, I don't know if it's just that I like things that feel like they're pumping me up to write, like I just need something that's more, um, like it feels more energetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I definitely can't listen to classical things or softer instrumental music. It almost feels like it's too relaxing and I just would rather go to sleep. And so I tend to gravitate towards that action-oriented. And Game of Thrones in particular has that. Ramin Djawadi's stuff across the board has it, but Game of Thrones in particular, it just there's something about it that's just, it's tense. Mm-hmm. And so it makes me feel like I should be working. So... I kind of want to ask you kind of, you mentioned that you're writing deals with kind of some very heavy things in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. Do you feel a certain need to pair certain types of music with certain writing objectives or do you feel like the music needs to work within a particular mood for writing or anything like that? Mm, that's a really interesting question. And I don't know that I've ever thought about that, but it is interesting because Lately, I've been doing a lot of anime themes, mm-hmm. and I've also we I just created this collaborative anime playlist, and I've been doing a lot of collaborative writing lately, and so I'm wondering if there is something to that where it's like I've been doing this more collaborative, and the anime themes are also energetic, but it's energetic in a less tense way. Uh, versus when I listened to Ramin Jawadi, it was for a lot of my more like trauma-oriented writing. So I never thought about it in the way that you're asking, but now I am. So mm-hmm. maybe there is something to that. Okay. Um, kind of tied to that, um, does your the, the music you listen to change as you kind of move across different segments of the work you do, right? From something like writing to grading to class prep to these other types of parts of our work? Mm, I think there is. Um, like even in, even in the songs that I listen to, there's, even though it tends to all be more action oriented, there's still the ones that are like the battle music versus sort of the coming down from the battle and going home kind of stuff and I think there are those moments where it's like okay I'm getting towards the end of grading and those are the moments where I'm listening towards the to the ones that are like I'm going home finally uh, versus I do notice myself when it's like I really need to get all of this stuff done I tend to listen to like the battle music Um, so I do notice a difference there okay 
Um, and so as you, you know, kind of talk through these ideas of the battle music, the sound, the soundtrack, what are some other examples besides kind of Jawadi uh, and the Game of Thrones stuff that might be some things that would kind of round out these sounds? Mm-hmm. I, well, I mentioned I, I've been listening to some anime music mm-hmm. um, and I listen to a lot of video game music. I've been playing Persona 5 lately, which is not traditional video game music like it's not mario where you have like the dings and almost video game noises in it Mm -hmm. where it's more modern and it has um sometimes almost like jazz sounds to it in there and in some of the tracks and they have different um like there's different areas in it it's more modern um and so there's some of that that happens in there all of those are still instrumental. Um, some of the anime themes do have lyrics, um, but again, they're in a language. I don't speak Japanese. Most of them are Japanese. Um, and so it's in a language I don't understand. So it comes back to that. So those are some of the ones with lyrics. So those are different. Okay. So uh, if you were to kind of tell us like, a touchstone playlist of like what are the the key songs or pieces we would need to know to kind of get the feel for your writing ambiance what might be a couple tracks we would listen to mm-hmm. i'll go back to ramin jawadi for a second okay and i will say uh bastard from battle of the bastards would be one what is it about that track that really calls to you i think it more than any of them capture you know earlier i was sort of mentioning that there are the songs that capture all of these different moods of like going to the battle and coming home and this and that i think it more than any of them captures it in one song okay and there's something about that track that i know that game of thrones is one of those that people have a lot of respect for those songs but uh, i can hear and i can see all of the scenes mm-hmm. when I hear that song more than any of the other songs, I think. Um, and part of it is, it's just like you see the battle, but then you also see them like entering Winterfell later. And it's just, I don't know. There's something about that one that just really stands out to me. And so, go ahead. Oh, no, you continue, please. Um, I think one that i've been listening to a lot lately is an an anime theme this one is i think the one exception because it's in english um which is history maker and it's from yuri on ice but there is something about that one that i can listen to even though it's in english and i don't know why it's the exception but i have been able to listen to that one it is on my uh study track so so um, a common theme I'm just kind of getting hearing this is like kind of immersing yourself in the affect of a battle. Mm-hmm. What is it about this like kind of combative theme that mm-hmm. really kind of seems to help you do your work? Because it seems that, you know, you're, you're toning towards more than just like the beat. There's like you said, kind of envisioning the scene. So what is that? How does that help you do your work? I think I think there's something about I know I mentioned the battle a few times. I don't know if it's all just a battle. I think History Maker helps it because that one is like Yuri on Ice is this ice skating one, so it's not okay. battle necessarily. 
um game of thrones of course is all sure. battle stuff but it is action at least and i think that that's what helps more than okay. anything so it's not always just combative but it is something about taking on an energy and taking on this feeling of like being able to do things and and all of them are competitive um oh. even like the ice skating is competitive the battle is competitive so there is something about that there it's not always necessarily competitive in this battle sense of going to like kill the writing or something but sure at least being able to go in and be like i am going to take this on right you will you'll achieve your goals and mm -hmm. vanquish your foes right. um whether through the grace grace of figure skating or the carnage of battle mm -hmm. um all right well i think that gives us a good sense of what you listen to uh we will uh take another quick break and then we will return and guy will ask you some questions more about your writing process uh, you are all listening to The Right Notes. Well, welcome back to The Right Notes. This is Guy McKendry with John Carter. Our guest today is Lauren Brentnell. And Lauren was just talking with John a little bit about the music and sound um, that kind of fills her, her uh, space when, when writing. And Lauren, I want to now talk uh, a little bit more specifically about the writing process. I think kind of uh, one of the surprising nuggets that John and I have found in doing this, or doing this podcast is this kind of great diversity around how people work and the kind of tension between our idiosyncratic ways of, of writing and uh, this ideal that many of us kind of have instilled in us that there's like this perfect process out there we're chasing. Uh, so can you talk to us just a little bit about when you're writing what does that look like? Where do you start? What does kind of your uh, start to finish from nugget of an idea to like finished piece? What's that process like for you? Yeah. Um, I, I think for me, it's different for every project. And so you were sort of in your introduction, you were talking about chasing this ideal. And I think I've almost given up on that because every single project ends up being something totally different for me. The one thing that I think is always the same is the very beginning where I sort of have to map out what does this project need. And so I do have to kind of go in and say, what do I want to do here? What is necessary? And then once I figure that out, I can go from there. But that beginning point of saying what is necessary tells me all of the other things that I'm going to have to do later. Um, right now, I am in the process of having all of the projects that I'm working on are collaborative, which is, I've worked on collaborative projects before, so that's not totally new, but it is sort of weird that all of them at the moment are collaborative, and that requires a very different kind of process too because it also means that I'm having to like reach out to other people and figure out where they're at and what we can do together. And so that's also its own sort of thing. It means that I'm having to communicate a lot with people and, and you know, 
figure out where we fit together, what we can do together, how we can uh, communicate together, where that's going to happen, how that's going to happen, those sorts of things too. We have not uh, in, I think, kind of a, a, a big way gotten into conversations around collaborative writing. Uh, some of that is, I think, um, maybe some bias around field. Like early on, we've talked to a lot of rhetoric people and sometimes rhetoric, at least on the comm studies side, um, doesn't always reward collaborative scholarship. I think, thankfully, that's, that's changing. But when, when you're doing collaborative work, what are some of the ways that you um, connect with, share, uh, and kind of produce something with someone else? What's that look like? Right. It's, again, it's slightly different with everybody. The first place that we start with is just figuring out ways to bring our interests and expertise together and whether or not that's even possible. Um, I think all of the projects that I've had so far have usually started with a conversation where we just say, hey, it, it's usually that, hey, that thing that you're talking about or that thing that I know you do is really interesting to me. Is there an intersection here that we can talk about or do something with? And then we keep having that conversation with and we figure out something that we can do or a project. Sometimes it's a call for papers and we say, hey, this seems like something that we both do. Let's figure out how to do it. Sometimes it's creating our own project together that's outside of any sort of CFP. But, you know, whatever it is, we end up coming together and figuring out a project. Um, I'm also, this is actually not even just the research side of it. I really am doing a lot of collaborative stuff because I'm also co-teaching a course at the moment. So that's another sort of collaboration. And that's another side of like trying mm -hmm. to figure out how to fit together. Um, and the person I'm co-teaching with is in another discipline. She's a science professor. So then we're also having to try and fit together our interests and expertise across disciplines and figuring out how like, okay, this is how you teach and the stuff that you know from this discipline this is what I know from rhetoric and composition. How can we fit together our expertise in order to teach our students? Um, and what can we produce out of that? And so it's knowing that we want some sort of deliverable out of that. We have a goal to teach our students or in the case of the research to, you know, produce an article or a book chapter or a book or whatever it is. Um, and then figuring out how to get there with our shared expertise. Yeah, I, I, I always find and I love like when I get to the published product of a collaborative piece, I, I always have this moment where I sit back and I go like, there's no way I could have done this on my own. Like, um, and it's really hard because it does depend on who the other people are you're collaborating with, how they work. Um, and I, I like I'm afraid to call it alchemy because uh, then it's not real, but there is something magic in like just linking up with that right person at that right time. That's totally true. Um, you can't see this right now, but I'm nodding <laughs> to everything that you're saying. Uh, I've done a lot of collaborative projects and there is, there's some that work better than others. 
And there are some people that you get together with and it does, it just goes so smoothly and it's like, I can work with this person forever. And there's something about just getting together and it, it's alchemy or magic or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's, it's like a relationship where mm -hmm. sometimes you date somebody and you're just like, yeah, it fits, it works. And sometimes it's just, it's hard and awkward and you're like, this is not, no, this is not the person I want to keep dating. And that it, it, it's exactly like that. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So kind of coming back to your writing process, and this can be when you collaborate or individually, what are some, uh, like, what's the biggest challenge you face? What, what do you see kind of as that obstacle that kind of is always there project after project? Where do you struggle? Honestly, I think the biggest struggle is everything else. Uh, it's trying to communicate when all of the other life stuff is going on. And I'm thinking about this semester in particular with everything going on. So I had some, some of these projects were happening and we had plans to, you know, meet at a certain date or have some things done by a particular deadline. And then, you know, COVID happened and it wasn't going to happen because we all of a sudden had so many other things that we had to do. So and that happens, you know, whether or not there's a pandemic going on, something interferes and people can't communicate or they can't talk. Sometimes that's, you just say, okay, yeah, we get it. Life stuff goes on. Um, but sometimes that means that that collaboration kind of falls apart and just doesn't mm. end up happening. Are there, um, so when you are kind of running into these barriers or um, whether it's all the other stuff you have going on or you're trying to collaborate and things just aren't clicking, what, what keeps you going? What are kind of the things in um, this life, uh, this way of living and working uh, that we have that kind of helps you push through those challenges? Mm -hmm. I think that's a good question too. I think I think there's one or two things. The first answer I would have is there are sometimes where the collaboration itself can pull me through. Sometimes it is that moment where it's like it's falling apart, but then one of us will reach out and we'll reconnect and it is that moment of just saying like, "Okay, we can make this work." And that reconnection and that being able to just come back together with that person and that reminder of like, okay, yeah, actually this project is something that I really want to do. This person or these people are people that I really want to work with does give you that spark to continue. Um, and I, there's just something about like being able to come back to that. Sometimes you need that break and away from it to be able to come back and have that reminder of, yeah, this is a passion that I have. Are there uh, specific places where you find yourself preferring to work? Like, is that an office? Is that at home? Is that, uh, I know you're in Fort Collins, so there are all kinds of like niche coffee shops you can jump into. It's interesting that you asked that question right now. And because the answer is yes, and it's also not at home. And that's been something that's really hard because then I'm trapped at home. <laughs> for yeah. lack of a better term. Uh, and that's been something that's been very, very difficult. And I feel like that's 
interfered with my productivity a lot. I, I mentioned that I just moved here this year. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I did is I got rid of a lot of my furniture, including my desk. So I don't, I also don't have a place to work in my home. And I just sort of assumed I will be able to work in my office. I'll be able to go out to a coffee shop. It'll be fine. And then I didn't. I wasn't able to go to those places anymore. So I've just been like working on my couch because that's the only place that I have at the moment. So that's really been interfering with my like productivity in these ways. Like it's doable. Technically, I have a coffee table, but it's not the best space at the moment. I, I am currently sitting at a folding table um, in a, a room, thankfully, that I can call an office with uh, two desk chairs, both of which hurt my back in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, both I feel old uh, and also like, yeah, this the this thing, the pandemic, right? Uh, John John has taken to referring to like, how do you work in the before times? Uh, because this has messed things up uh, for so many, but especially, right, because it's your first year, and so you're just making that transition and finding those good spaces, and then they're taken away. Right, right. It's been it's been a lot for a lot of people for a lot of reasons. So, I yeah. mean, in, in the grand scheme of things, that's such a small thing to complain about, mm-hmm. but if you're giving me the chance to complain. Yeah, right. Well, I'll take it. Yeah, yeah. and when we're talking about, because so much of this is about pro, like the writing process broadly. And so, yeah, like I'm focusing your complaints in a, in a pretty specific area. Um, but when academia as a whole has come to, I think, fetishize productivity, um, we just don't have a meaningful language to circle back around in the midst of a pandemic and say, what does it look like when we are all, we're all tasked to, at being productive in spaces that are not conducive for, or even designed for that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, uh, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And in just a moment, John will be back to wrap up the episode. This is the right notes. Welcome back to The Right Notes. I'm John Carter here with Guy McHenry and Lauren Brentnell. And uh, we've had a great conversation today about music writing and uh, dealing with the kind of new experiences of new towns and the wildness that is the current time. So thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. Thanks for having me. Um, uh, One of the kind of ways we finish up every podcast is we give kind of our song of the week, the song that's helping us get through things, inspiring us, whatever it may be. And we'll give you a second to kind of think that over. So Guy, what is your song this week? So I went super emo uh, last time, and now I'm going to like go in a different, but perhaps more cliched direction and drop some Counting Crows. Um, But I I recently discovered uh, that the Counting Crows covered uh, the Smiths, There's a Light That Never Goes Out. Um, with uh, a Dutch band, I'm going to mess up the pronunciation, but that's okay, Bloth. 
Um, and uh, so it is both in English and Dutch covering the Smiths. It's live, which I, I love live music broadly, but when I can't have it, like recordings of live music. Uh, and there's something about like Adam Duritz doing the Smiths that just I'm feeling it this week. How about you? So going back two weeks ago, I said I was going to take that deep dive into Alice in Chains, and that's kind of where I've been. Um, specifically, uh, their Unplugged album. Um, man, I miss MTV doing Unplugged albums, the weird aesthetic of like candles lighting the stage. Um, but specifically the song Wood, I, I think it just kind of embodies Alice in Chains and kind of like the combination of grunge with like really deep harmonies and kind of a driving bass line. Um, and so I just find it a really kind of like good song to think through or work through. And also I think Alice in Chains gets underrated when talking about Seattle grunge. Uh, wow. And I'm willing to stand up for that fight that they are less important than Pearl Jam, but better than Nirvana. Whoa. Um, yeah, whoa, I'll say whoa. it. Uh, wow. <laughs> wow. Anywho. Uh, what about you, Lauren? <laughs> Yeah. So when I was on the job market last year, I created a playlist of pump up music that I would do before every interview just to get myself in a headspace of like, you're amazing and awesome. So I'm going to pick a song from that playlist. Um, I'm going to pick, I, I'm just kind of looking through it right now. I'm going to pick Jump Around from House of Pain. And yes. yeah, so that yeah, is that's song. Amazing. just a pump up music. It's all it's all eclectic, different genres all over the place. Jump around is my pick. Yeah, I don't know if the mic picked it up, but I definitely whispered nice when you said <laughs> I, that. I heard it, so I'm, okay. I, I'm confident I'll make it in. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, a great song. Uh, so uh, once again, thank everyone for listening to the right notes. I think a good note to leave us on is the, the memory that Guy would back off the metaphor of alchemy, but then turn to the metaphor of magic. Seems like the right way to think about how we make the right notes.